0: into our prayer focus for this month. Uh, This month, uh, right now, this week, we're gonna be looking at Gabon, um, or as it's officially known, it's the Gabonese Republic. And uh, it's an amazing uh, piece of uh, property. It's uh, twice the size of the state of Pennsylvania. Um, And here's the amazing part. I mean, even though it's large and big and things like that, the amazing part actually is that it used to be a place where uh, Christian Missionary Alliance International Workers would go now that is flipped now christian missionary alliance international workers are being sent from gabon to other countries and and that's that's actually a testimony to our faithfulness to give to the great commission fund to be praying for our our missionaries our international workers but it's also a testimony to god's faithfulness and and one of the philosophical things that the christian missionary alliance has is that we're not going to go into an international area of work uh, just to make it more Western. It's actually to raise up local leaders and, and have an actual advancement of the kingdom through local leadership that way. It's far more effective. And so this is actually one of those um, opportunities where we can actually say praise God for the faithfulness of not only the Christian Missionary Alliance but the, the workers that we have there. So with that, would you join me in prayer as we pray for Gabon? Uh, Jesus, uh, we are reminded often that uh, we are an Acts eight christ Christ-centered family, that we are going to go spread uh, your gospel message everywhere, not just in our own backyards, not just in our own living rooms, but everywhere that we go. It starts here at home, but it also has regional implications, that it also has international implications. We recognize that not everybody is going to be uh, sent out to be an international worker as, as uh, we read in the book of Acts that even uh, not everybody was sent to be an international worker. But we get to partner uniquely with those international workers as they are on the field laboring hard. And so as uh, we celebrate what is happening in Gabon, uh, would you just uh, continue to magnify your reach as we hopefully, uh, obey the call that you put on each of our lives to not just be, uh, um, spectators, but participants that we get to, to again, partner with you as you advance your kingdom throughout the world. And we thank you. And we want to turn our attention to the next few minutes as, uh, hopefully we hear again from your word on, uh, uh, as we look at the book of Acts, we pray all of this in your sweet and precious name. Amen. So I, uh, I learned something new this weekend, or last weekend, when I was in uh, West Virginia. As many of you guys know, I am uh, in the West Virginia National Guard, and uh, I had to go to West Virginia this last weekend. That's why uh, Pastor Tim, he filled in wonderfully for me. But I, I went to West Virginia, and I learned something new. And it, it's, it, I, I, as, as many of you know, at the end of every holler in West Virginia is generally a church, and in some of those churches have been there for generations, and sometimes people that attend those churches have been attending for generations. And, but some of those churches at the end of these hallers, some of them are a little bit on what we might call the fringe of good, sound theology and doctrine. But oftentimes, you will find that you will learn something great from some of these people that have been sitting in the pews in some of these end of the holler churches, and um, I learned a new Greek word, and it does pertain to our passage today, and so I want to teach that Greek word to you, but I want to read just a portion of Scripture again. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Um, I think Andrew did a masterful job of reading through that. Um, but um, we're going to start in, in verse 33, and I want, to, I want you to pay attention. I want to see if you can pick up where this Greek word is, okay? Okay. Um, starting in verse 33. It says, Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Here it comes. Pay attention. This is really where it's at. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So, did you, did you hear it? Did you hear Well, Christ is definitely a Greek word, but that's not what I'm going for. Okay, it's in verse 36. And, and the, the Greek word here um, is, is uh, you. Uh, that's not the Greek word. It's our English word, you. Um, it's, it, it's, uh, you re- read it, it's whom you crucified. And it's what we call a corporate singular. In the Greek, I want you all to learn this word. So listen carefully and repeat it after me, okay? You ready? You're going to repeat it after me. So this is participation time, okay? So if uh, I don't hear you, I'm going to just stay here and we're going to stare at each other awkwardly, okay? So I need to hear from you. So it starts with ye, ah, oh, ye, ah, oh, y'all. Y'all, okay. So it's not really a Greek word, okay? You got me, but it, it actually it, it, it highlights what's really going on in this passage is that that Peter, as he gets up and he starts expositing from some of the Old Testament passages and the Old Testament history, he 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 he's pointing this out to them that when we say you, I mean we all know that you can mean you or it can mean y'all, right? And so when Peter gets up, he is actually going through the history of, of the Jewish nation, and he's, he's talking to primarily Jewish people sitting around, and he is poking them. He is, he is not exactly... Uh, if he were in this church today, he would probably say, if you're not wearing steel toe boots on, you need to tuck them back underneath the pews, because I'm about to stomp on your toes. So, y'all. So, what Peter does is he starts with the life of Jesus, and he begins by uttering some pretty insulting words to speak about Peter's simple and basic humanity. You guys remember the, this, this phrase, Jesus of Nazareth, actually was not really meant to be a, a warm and fuzzy name, the word Nazareth. Um, it's actually a callback to the early days of Jesus' early ministry. Remember in John 1, he goes out and he starts calling different people to, to follow him. And uh, Philip was one of the early disciples of Jesus, and, and when he found Jesus, and then he goes and he goes and he finds Nathaniel, and he tells Nathaniel, "Hey, the one that we've been waiting for is coming, and his name is Jesus of Nazareth." And then, uh, what is Nathaniel's response? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, when we read that, we just kind of read over it, we maybe gloss over it, maybe we just look at it and we don't really understand the full, full importance of what uh, Nathaniel is saying. But let me put it this way. When I was growing up, I went to Mount Vernon High School, um, go Bulldogs, uh, in Mount Vernon, Washington. We had across the valley, the Skagit Valley, um, a rivalry with a town called Cedar Woolley. Now, we in Mount Vernon, we were, um, if I, I say this with love and grace, we were kind of preppy. But we we're also really good at basketball, wrestling, and, and academics, and, and pretty much everything that Cedar Woolley was not good at. And in, in a lot of ways, Cedar Woolley was uh, what we would probably today called rednecks. I I fell into that same very trap until I started to date a girl from Cedar Woolley, and then I was like, no, they're they're not rednecks. Um, they're actually pretty good people. But that's kind of the idea of what's going on here: is that. That's the mindset that people had about people from Nazareth. And when Peter reminds people that he is Jesus of Nazareth, it means that he came from pretty humble beginnings. He didn't have the best education. Remember, what was Peter's or I'm sorry, Jesus' earthly dad's job? He was a carpenter. Now, I want to be careful when I say this, but most of the time growing up, when in Jesus' day, A carpenter was a tradesman, and they weren't exactly college-bound. They weren't rabbi-trained. They were kind of uneducated. Could they build you some fantastic furniture? Absolutely. But being the son of a carpenter was probably not the best thing in the world. So Peter uses this title, uh, not just meant to be a slam against the rednecks of Nazareth, but it was also a way of pointing to that Jesus was human. He was fully human, folks. Fully human. And also by some accounts, he wasn't the best looking dude either. So there's a lot of things going on that uh, was kind of in the background as we look at Jesus' uh, humble beginnings. He, his humble and basic humanity. Um, and, but again, I want to be careful that this was not a deterrent for his gracious and divine ministry. While Jesus was a man, he was also divine. While he was fully human, he was still fully God. And everything that he did was wrapped up in that kind of that mixture. One of the things that Jesus would do is he would heal people. He would perform miracles, wouldn't he? He didn't just perform miracles on, on people for the benefit of those people, though. Oftentimes, when he would perform a miracle, it was so that it would authenticate his message. In Jesus' case, a watcher of the miracle would be able to legitimize the message that was being put forth by Jesus. And so one of the things that we have to remember is that oftentimes when Jesus was, was performing these uh, miracles, it was with the, in the viewpoint of a lot of people, some of whom were the religious elite. Some of whom were the religious elite. And here's one of the things that I find fascinating. And maybe you find it fascinating as well. Jesus would sometimes perform miracles on the Sabbath. And that really got under the skin of the religious elite, didn't it? When Jesus healed, the elite were offended. And if you want to really, there's there's a a kind of a a double passage in in Luke 14 and 15 where Jesus heals on the the Sabbath. And one of the things that we we have to remember is that that Jesus did this and, and he did this to highlight for the religious elite that though you love God, you kind of are not really good at loving people. You would much rather adhere to the the strictures of the scriptures that you have put forth and maybe save an ox, maybe save um, a lamb, but never mind about the people that are in real need. See, let me trace something here for you. And some of you, it might be redundant, maybe it's review, but I'm going to start with this. God created the heavens and the earth, right? And all throughout the history, we've heard that phrase God created the heavens and the earth, created everything, he created mankind, and then mankind immediately sinned. And then through different circumstances, God's chosen people, the Jews, found themselves enslaved in, in, in Egypt. And then uh, God decided he would send Moses to help remove the Hebrew nation from slavery. And then one of the things he did was that this new, uh, new nation embarked on a three-day journey. You guys know that the 40-year wanderings was only a three-day journey? It was only a three-day journey. But there, it took them 40 years. But while they're in this, uh, this journey... God superintends it for Moses to, to put forth some, some laws for this new nation. And, and primary in these new laws is what we call the Ten Commandments. Now, the Ten Commandments, they can be broken up into really two major sections, right? The things that, uh, that deal with our relationship with God. But then the other part is our relationship with others. And again, these, these religious beliefs they were really, really good about these Ten Commandments. They really wanted people to adhere to the Ten Commandments but they had missed the point of the Ten Commandments. It deals with our relationship with God, and I think that probably the Pharisees were probably pretty good about wanting to love God. But where they were really always hurting themselves is when they would go to love people. And that wasn't really a thing for them. It wasn't really a thing for them. So Jesus used some of these miracles to point people to God, while at the same time, his point was to point out that these religious elites did not love people well. And his ministry his ministry was public. And you can read it in here. It says, as you yourselves know. You see, the fun thing for me is that Jesus did not do any of this in secret. If he had done it in secret, we wouldn't know about it. Right? And I think that the reason Jesus' ministry was public is that you cannot glorify God in secret. The other part of this, though, is I think that you can't have a a, a private or or secret ministry in this day and age without people wondering, is he going to overthrow the temple? Or is he going to overthrow the Roman government? I mean, he was already kind of battling the second, wasn't he? People were thinking that the Messiah was going to come along and be a political figure who would overthrow the Roman government and instill a theological or a theocracy over the nation of uh, of Israel. So his ministry was public, From when he started, he turned water into wine to when he healed the temple guard's ear in the garden. Every miracle had a witness. From the Sermon on the Mount to his quiet time in the garden with his father, people heard his words and saw his deeds. Peter singles out these men of Israel and he does this intentionally. He is pointing this out. um, I, I think something that's pretty important. Though the Roman centurions were the ones who physically nailed Jesus to the cross, You men of Israel, yes, y'all, nailed him to the cross and put Jesus of Nazareth to death. Oh, and by the way, while Jesus did all of his ministry in public, you did your stuff in silence, in secret. You met with Judas behind closed doors. You came at night to take Jesus by by, uh, subterfuge. Oh, and then you had a kangaroo court. And then, yes, you men of Israel, you stood in the courtyard yelling for a murderer to be set free instead of Jesus. You called for Barabbas. Jesus' ministry was public, and part of that ministry was that he needed to die. That was his destiny. Perhaps the men of Israel might have had a sense of pride in their activities. Maybe these are religious elites as they were uh, doing everything that they did. Maybe they puffed themselves up and said that they were doing the right thing. Maybe even to the casual observer, the actions of the religious elites and the leaders of the synagogues maybe was in some way going to uh, further God's plan, but they, they were probably right in that. That's the weird part is that they were probably right in their advancement of the kingdom. But I will tell you this, as I read the gospel accounts, this, is, this has always been a struggle of mine. Um, is, as I read the gospel accounts, I kind of get in my mind, I start rooting for Jesus. You know, and, and I don't know if this underlies, you know, how I read the gospels. Maybe I'm reading them a little bit too much like a novel. But I start rooting that the, the plot has a big plot twist at the end. Ha ha, he didn't die. But unfortunately, that doesn't benefit us, does it? That doesn't engage us in a relational aspect of God. And the funny thing is, is that I'm, as I'm reading this, I also, also feel like maybe, maybe the enemy is kind of gloating as he, as he sees what's unfolding in front of him. As he sees what, because uh, uh, remember in the Last Supper, it says that uh, um, Satan entered into Judas. So he knew what was happening. And so as, as uh, Satan's an observer of history and he's looking at what's going on with Jesus and he, he knows that he'd tempted him and didn't get anywhere and that Jesus is still sinless, the sinless son of God, the lamb of God, on whom all of our sins rested, went to the cross. And I just imagine that as Satan is watching those hammers and nails going into Jesus' wrists and his, and his uh, ankles, and uh, all the scourging that he underwent, and all that I'm just—I just picture that that Satan is somehow feeling a little gloatish. Ha ha! We've won. And I imagine that even as uh, Joseph of Arimathea comes and t- helps and, and claims Jesus's body and takes Jesus and buries him in the tomb, that Satan is just like Woohoo! And then I think that you know, as uh, Jesus lays in that tomb for three days. Satan is just like, oh, yeah, we've got this. But then Sunday came. And that takes us to our final point. Jesus put to death, death. The rest of our passage speaks to this truth today. Peter goes to great lengths to outline everything that had happened in the Old Testament. He went to great lengths to talk about Abraham, he talked about David, and, and I want to I introduce you guys to this thing called a seed promise. I don't know if maybe you've heard of it or not, uh, this is not a weird thing, this is not give me 10 bucks, I'll give you 100, it's not that kind of seed promise. In a theological sense, if you turn over to Genesis chapter 3, you're going to read that there was a promise that Eve's seed would defeat Satan. And if you read the Old Testament and you look at the Old Testament, you're going to read that that seed promise is always being kept alive. That there's always a remnant of the nation of Israel that comes through. As you read the wilderness wanderings, as you read them going into exiles, you see them returning from exiles, you see them building back up the temple and the city. The seed promise is alive. And it comes to fruition in Jesus. Not just because he went to the cross and died. Not because he went into the tomb and stayed buried. But because he rose again. That's the seed promise. And in that moment when Jesus came out of that tomb, he defeated death. Jesus put to death, death. And everything that goes along with that. All the sickness and all the pain and all the sorrow. All that is put to death under the cross. Where we read in Isaiah 53 that it's by his wounds that we are healed. And that comes to fruition in Jesus. Jesus put to death, death. And we get to rejoice in that. And so as Satan is sitting there rejoicing, not understanding the entirety of it, uh, it he lost. And implied in what Peter's saying to that crowd of the y'alls there that day, Hey, if you don't believe what I'm saying, listen, Abraham had a tomb, David had a tomb, guess what? The son of man, he don't. Because implied in what Peter was saying to those people that day is, hey, listen, if you want to go explore the garden uh, grave in which Jesus was buried, here's Joseph of Arimathea, a rich dude. He knew exactly where his tomb was. He probably could have uh, given you a, a guided tour of the cemetery, Probably not as good as the Isid Heritage Museum up here on the hill, but hey, um, they didn't have the technology then. But he could have done that. He could have taken people around the the cemetery and said, that's where my great aunt was buried. Oh, and by the way, this is where Jesus was. Poke your head in there. And if you know, if you poked your head in there, you know what you would have seen? Nothing. Nada. You would have seen zip. Because the tomb is empty. Because Jesus put to death, death. He defeated it. The grave could not keep him. You might have seen a hollowed out place where Jesus was laying, if it was light enough. So, you who all crucified Jesus, guess what? God made him Lord in Christ. Christ. So let me ask you an important question. It's a really important question that I need to take a drink of water for. Do we organize ourselves in such a way that we celebrate that? Do we organize ourselves, and do our ministries reflect this life-giving, life-altering change? Do we celebrate all of this I mean, yeah, of course, once a year on the calendar, of course we do. Easter, it's super important, right? For me, Easter is the Christmas uh, in the church. I know that sounded weird. Let me explain. We invest conservatively, probably thousands of dollars per household on Christmas stuff, right? How much do we invest at Easter time? The event that allows you to enter into a life-changing life-altering relationship with God of the universe is really kind of an also ran on most uh, church calendars. So, the question I'm really asking here is, do we celebrate Easter daily? Do we celebrate the resurrection? Do we organize in such a way that we give people opportunities to discover this truth, to grow into maturity of this truth? And then to deploy into different areas to to radically share that truth with people. The reason I bring this up is that there's this sad reality of the state of the church in many areas of North America. And it's that this is a primary issue. This is primary In in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul even goes on to say that if the resurrection is false, then our faith is, is unimportant. But we sometimes preach the proclamation of the gospel as a secondary issue. Now, please don't hear me setting up this straw man that says, oh, oh these, these other churches out here do this, or, or some churches do that. I'm not setting up a straw man here. I'm going to give you some facts here, some numbers. If you are a numbers person, hold on to your uh, buckets. Um, so 50% of regular churchgoers, so if there's, what, about 75 people in here? So what is 80%, or I'm sorry, 57% of, of that number? Who's my numbers people? 39. So 39 of this room here, if this is true across the board, say they've never had a religious experience that changed their life. 57% of the North American church have said that they have never had an experience, a religious experience that changed their life. And for me, that boggles my mind. How can that be? You have entered into a relationship with somebody who you did what I call the cosmic U-turn. Once you were going to hell, then whoop, now you're not. How do we get there? So 57%. 20% of evangelicals, of whom we count ourselves as that large family, 20% of evangelicals are not sure that heaven is a real place. Only 8% of regular church attenders believe that sharing their faith is very important. Now, let me say this. If you fall into that uh, uh, 92% that it's uh, not very important and to somewhere along the spectrum of it's unimportant, you're wrong. How do you go and make disciples? How are you Christ's witness? And and I know that a lot of people will uh, talk about the the quote that says, you know, uh, preach at all times, preach the gospel at all times, and sometimes use words. Understand the, the sentiment behind that. Let your words reflect your, the, be reflected in your lifestyle that you lead so that people will uh, turn to Jesus. I understand that sentiment, but how will they come to faith without hearing? They need to hear the gospel. Use your lifestyle, yes, as a means of bridging the gap of, of I'm in the church, you're not. Let's bridge that gap. Let's build a bridge Let's build that relational bridge together and then shore that up so that eventually the strength on that relational bridge can handle a gospel conversation. 69% of church goers believe that everyone will go to heaven. 50% of Christians think that non-Christians have no interest in hearing about Jesus. Hold on to that. 50% think that non-Christians have no interest in hearing about Jesus. 78% of the unchurched would listen to somebody who shared their faith. and that, So maybe that's why 56% of churchgoers who pray for opportunities share their faith. Um, but in the last month, only 10% have had a conversation about the Lord with anyone. That means that we've got work to do, Folks. There are more stats from this website page I looked at and if you want to find out more, see me afterwards. Um, But honestly, what this has done, uh, it's, it's led some scholars to say that what we have in the North American church is at best functioning agnostics and at worst functioning atheists. If we're not doing what Jesus has called us to do, what are we even gathered for? How about you though? I mean, I talk about the church collective. What about you individually? Are you interested in seeing the gaps in our pews filled with new Christians? Are you hopeful in seeing the kingdom of God advancing? If you uh, tuned in on Wednesday night, you heard me kind of talk about this idea that um, as I'm standing alongside the road and the um, Humvees are rolling out on this convoy, as my men are going off to go shoot guns, um, I just felt a little discombobulated. I didn't feel like myself. And it dawned on me that the convoy rolls on, with or without me. Same thing is true of the kingdom of God. It will advance. Do we get to partner with him in that? So when we look around this country and we see communities that are being torn apart by racism, when we see people that are, are uh, dis, disrespecting um, authority and, and just being torn apart by, by vitriol and hate, we have the answer. We have the answer. And, and oftentimes, as a, as a pastor in the Christian church, you know, people say, the church needs to take a stand on this. No, no. The church needs to evangelize a soul by soul by soul, advancing the kingdom. Because it's those souls that need to be changed. I cannot legislate love into somebody. We tried that, it don't work. We have the answer to hatred. We have the answer to racism. We have the answers to the problems that are around us. So here are some things that might help. Number one, begin by praying. Begin by praying. I assume that each of us has at least one person in our lives, at least one person in our lives who needs to know Jesus. My recommendation is that what you do is you grab a post-it note, write that person's name on it, and slap it against the mirror. And then every time you go brush your teeth, and for the dentists in our congregation, you'll like this, you should be brushing your teeth at least twice a day, flossing at least once, When you go to brush your teeth, you're going to see that person's name and then you're going to pray for that person. It's not going to be, oh, I pray for so-and-so that they would. um, Pray deep, diligent prayer for their soul. You see, the thing about diligent prayer is it doesn't happen accidentally. You don't do things accidentally diligently. It takes intentionality. It takes maybe changing habits in your life. So when you pray for that person, pray for God to give you an opportunity to share Jesus with your friend. Number two, get someone to help you. Having someone in your life, maybe they become a prayer partner with you. Maybe they're going to hold you accountable for whether or not you're doing this, but maybe they're also going to pray with you for your friend. Not maybe because they're a better prayer than you are. My guess is is that because it's your friend, you are in the best position to be praying for them. But you're asking for somebody to pray along with you. And the reason is is that the Bible tells us that teamwork matters. A cord of 3 cannot be broken. So if it's you and another plus Jesus praying for this friend, you're on the winning team. Can't go wrong. Number 3, listen for opportunities to share. That's hard. Because we get so wrapped up in our daily lives. We get wrapped up in, in, in rather than having a good conversation, good communication with people, we end up just waiting for them to take a breath so that we could just react or, or just say what we wanted to say in this conversation. But oftentimes when we are, when we are in conversations with people, there are opportunities, micro-opportunities, maybe macro-opportunities to share what Jesus would have you to share Sometimes they're going to they're going to show up on your doorstep and they're going to be like, "Hey, I want to know about this Jesus guy." That would be a macro opportunity. Maybe a micro opportunity might look a little bit like, "I can't believe how much hatred there is out there." Or "My life is really off the rails right now." I don't even know what I'm doing. Those are micro opportunities. And if the person that's across the coffee table from you is sharing this with you, guess what? You have built a relational bridge that is strong enough to handle a gospel conversation. But you've got to be listening for those opportunities. Don't just be going through your, your checklist of, you know, how you doing? Good, glad to hear it. How about the uh, Penn State? Are they going to have a football team this year? I don't know. That's, that's not it. But before you wade into the conversation, ask permission first. How many in here have ever gotten unsolicited advice? Did you, did you absorb that advice? Probably not. I know that when unsolicited advice comes in my direction, I'm immediately why are you telling me this? I wasn't asking for that. So if you ask permission first to give this advice, so you have a greater opportunity to, to make a difference in that person's life. And then celebrate challenges. (laughs) Wait a minute, Pastor. You want me to celebrate challenges? Yes, yes, yes. Because when the challenges are coming, that tells me that you're on the right track because now at this point, the enemy is aware of what's going on. The enemy is all of a sudden, he's taking a notice of what you're doing with your friend. That's a big deal. Because imagine if the enemy just didn't care. That means one of two things. You don't matter or he's already got you. So if the challenges are coming, rejoice in that. But also celebrate victories, celebrate victories. Because here's the thing is that we can get all bound up in in celebrating the the hardships, but then, then we forget that good stuff happens, right? Sometimes people walk into your house and they say, tell me about this Jesus guy. And you're like, hey, pastor gave me some thoughts on this. Here we go. And you're like, all right. And then what we need to do is we need to celebrate those victories. Whether or not the victory is that you were obedient to Jesus and you took a chance and you shared Jesus with your coworker, your friend, your neighbor, your family member. Or maybe they came to church because you said, hey, come to church. That's a celebration. Now, don't hear me say that when you bring that unsaved friend to church that we're going to all stand up, turn to them, and and applaud them for coming. That might not exactly work well, is my thought. But we need to celebrate the victories as well. I'm convinced that if we can do these things, the gaps in our pews will begin to be filled with new believers. and And the kingdom will continue to advance. Amen? Alright, so I know that there's some of y'all who, uh, maybe I went too fast, and uh, you'd like me to recap the blanks, if you didn't fill in all the blanks, so I'm going to, I don't know if they're going to be up there, but I'm going to read them to you. Um, The first blank is the life of Jesus. Second is his simple and basic humanity, his gracious and divine ministry, his ministry was public, Jesus had a destiny to die. And Jesus put to death, death. Y'all got it? All right. I'm going to pray. And as I pray, I'm going to invite Jesse to come up and assist with communion. We're going to transition to communion here in just a moment. And uh, for you that are at home, as I pray, you have my full permission to either uh, enjoy the prayer with me. Or you can go ahead and head to the kitchen to gather together your things. Um, Just as a, well, let me pray first and then I'll give you some more further instructions. Jesus, we do thank you. We thank you for for the the, the, the message that that Peter preached on that day to remind us of the truths that are found in the Old Testament as it relates to our salvation. Thank you for taking on all of our sin. Thank you for being our our Savior. As we uh, embark on journeys of obedience to your word, and your will in our lives. Would you just uh, continue to send your spirit to to, uh, give us the power to recall the things that you've taught, to have those hard conversations with our unsaved friends and family members, to always remember that we're not in this alone, we're partnering with you and your spirit at the very least, and that the results are yours. That we are just here to do what you called us to do. And that's to be your witnesses. Well, your witness wherever we find ourselves. We pray this in your sweet and precious name. Amen.